Good morning, church. Good morning, church. Amen. God be praised. I thank you, Pastor Keith, for that introduction. And I'm under time constraints, so let's get straight to the text of Scripture. I invite you this morning to open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Peter. Book of 1 Peter. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1. In my tradition, growing up, you find the scripture, you could say amen. Amen. Hear what the word of the Lord says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Excuse me, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is God's word. The grass may wither and its flower may fall away, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your holy word. We ask, God, that as we dig into your word this morning, oh God, that you would open our eyes, that we, me, that we may behold wonderful things from your law. And I pray, God, that you would give me the physical strength and energy that I need to stand before your people to proclaim your word. Grant that I may proclaim your word with power, with accuracy, with precision, with, with power, and with boldness. I pray, God, as the seed of your word is planted, that it will not fall among the thorns, that it will not fall by the wayside, that it will not fall among rocky ground, but that it will fall on good ground. And I pray, God, that above all things, God, that you in this preaching moment, that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you heard the story but there were two Christian men who lived next door to each other. One day, a fire broke out in their neighborhood. One man's house was completely destroyed while the other man's house was left untouched. The man whose house was left untouched decided to go and 
visit the man who lost everything. You see, he wanted to give him a word of comfort. He reminded his neighbor that everything is gonna be okay. Because you see in heaven, you're gonna have a beautiful, glorious mansion on streets paved with gold. His neighbor didn't really find much comfort in this word. Instead of finding comfort in that word provided by his neighbor, he just shook his head and said, that's great, but how am I gonna get my house back? Many Christians today are unfazed by the by and by. They are unfazed by the promise of heaven as they grapple with pain here on earth. But I stand to tell you today that by and by, you will learn that your only true source of comfort in this life can be found in the by and by. The Bible tells us that there is coming a day when there will be no more sorrow, sadness, or suffering. There is coming a day when you will forget about all of the pain that you have experienced here on the earth, when you discover all that God has stored up for you in heaven. And this reality should bring you comfort in the midst of some of the most troubling trials that you could experience in life. In this letter before us, you will find that this is the manner in which Peter encourages some suffering saints scattered throughout the provinces of Asia Minor. They are experiencing some private persecution. At the time of Peter's writing of this letter, a government-sanctioned systematic persecution of Christians was on the way. These Christians would soon be clothed in animal skins and fed to wild beasts. They would be lit on fire like torches in the night to light up the gardens of a deranged emperor. And through some supernatural inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter is able to give them some encouragement ahead of the persecution that was soon to come. In five short chapters, he's able to address the glory of their salvation and challenges and how they are to respond in challenges and then conclude this letter. And in this portion of the text before us this morning, instead of encouraging these believers to look outward or inward in the midst of their trials, he encourages them to look upward in the midst of their trials. They were to look to a glorious salvation and inheritance that they have received. The Spirit of God working through the pen of the Apostle Peter wanted them, and you and I to know that you can and should take comfort in your salvation when troubled by the world. This text contains three glorious aspects of our salvation that you can take comfort in. First, notice with me the source of our salvation. The source of our salvation. In verse 1, Peter gives a standard greeting to these believers who are scattered throughout the northern part of Asia Minor. This is located in modern Turkey, and this is about 500 to 800 miles from their homeland. Because they are so far removed from their homeland, Peter chose to call them exiles. 
that's how it's rendered in the New International Version. But a better translation of this word for exiles would be what you would find in the Net Bible. The Net Bible tells us that these are people who are temporarily residing abroad. The New King James calls them pilgrims. The Nazbe calls them aliens. They are people who are temporarily residing in a place that's not their home. I hope, I hope you caught that because that describes all Christians. This, this earth is, is not your home. You, you're just a pilgrim traveling through on your way to your permanent home in heaven. These pilgrims being addressed in this text were scattered beyond the comfortable confines of their own homes, most likely because of persecution. And these dislocated refugees are comforted in their miserable condition with the reality of their salvation. Moving into verse 2, Peter draws attention to that salvation. He first presents the source of our salvation, and he does so in a Trinitarian manner. That is, he shows us how each of the members of the Godhead plays a pivotal role in our salvation. If you read the text carefully, you will see that we are chosen by the Father, we are made holy by the Spirit, and we are cleansed by the blood of the Son. First, he shows us that we are chosen by the Father in verse 2a. He says, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here, he is articulating what many would say is the biblical doctrine of election. It is the idea that God has chosen a people for himself before the foundation of the world. And although the word chosen does not actually appear in verse 2a, it is supplied because it is continuing a line of thought that Peter began in verse 1. In verse 1, he calls his readers God's elect. The word that appears there for elect literally means the chosen ones. These scattered Christians were chosen by God the Father. This idea that these suffering believers have been chosen is an idea that is repeated in chapter 2 of this epistle. In chapter 2, verse 4, he tells us that we come to Christ as to a living stone that was rejected by men but chosen by God, suggesting that Christ sets an example for all Christians because he himself was chosen by God but rejected by men. And in chapter 2, verse 9, in speaking to these troubled believers, he declares, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This wonderful truth that these believers were chosen by God would have brought them great comfort. Although they were scattered and experiencing some immense pain and persecution, they were chosen by God. And they were chosen not because of any righteous deeds performed on their part. Peter tells us that the basis of their election is rooted in a foreknowledge of God the Father. He says, you've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And this does not necessarily mean that God 
looked through the corridors of time and saw some good in these people and then chose them off of the basis of that good that he saw in them, although some would suggest that. I think that this means that God chose to enter into a special relationship with them before time began based off of no merit that he saw in them. This is the sense in which foreknowledge is used in Amos chapter 3, verse 2. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God is speaking to the children of Israel through the prophet. And he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, what does that mean for you? It means that you're not here today singing praises to God because you're smarter than your neighbor. You're here today because in spite of how sinful you were, God chose to save you and make you a member of his family. You have been chosen by the Father. Not only have we been chosen by the Father, Peter tells us that we have been made holy by the Spirit. Look at verse 2b. Verse 2b is the first time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in this epistle. The word Holy Spirit or Spirit of Christ shows up another two times in chapter 1 alone. And here, he is making reference to one of the many works that is performed by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that the Holy Spirit cleanses us? He, he cleanses us in a process that's called progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is a work of God whereby he progressively delivers the believer from the corruption of sin. It's a work of God that is performed in the present. But notice that when referencing the Spirit's sanctifying work, he's writing in the past tense. He says, you were chosen by the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. So he's not, he's not speaking of the present sanctifying work of the Spirit. He is instead presenting the sanctifying work of the Spirit as being the means by which God chooses to relate to believers. This is called positional sanctification, and it occurs at conversion. At your conversion, God immediately sets you apart from the world. You were sanctified by the Spirit. But not only were you sanctified by the Spirit, you were also cleansed by the blood of the Son. In verse 2c, he tells us that we are cleansed by the blood of the Son. God's choosing and reaching to these lost persons resulted in their cleansing, but it also resulted in them being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. This idea of being sprinkled with blood is an allusion to several Old Testament passages. The one that stands out the most is Exodus chapter 24. There, Israel is given a law at Mount Sinai that they must obey. After they have agreed to obey the law, they are then sprinkled by blood by the hands of Moses. That sprinkling of blood sealed the covenant between God and his people. And this symbolic act is most likely what Peter is referring to here in verse 2c. Just as the blood sealed the covenant in the Old Testament. The blood of Christ seals the new covenant for believers in the New Testament. You're sealed. 
Christ belongs to you, then you belong to Christ. Nothing can separate you from Christ. But if you look carefully at the text, you will see that God's choosing of us not only resulted in sprinkling, but it also resulted in obedience. Some of you all are probably thinking, obedience, what do you mean it resulted in obedience? Don't we all disobey God every now and then? So what does he mean by obedience? He's saying when the gospel was presented to you, you obeyed it. You obeyed the gospel. You you believed. In Romans chapter 10, verse 16, Paul indicts his Jewish countrymen for failing to obey the gospel. He says that they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? To be obedient is to obey the gospel. You don't, you don't obey God by rejecting his son and then trying to live a righteous life by keeping the commandments. No, you, you obey God by receiving his son. Peter goes on to conclude verse 2 by writing, grace and peace be yours in abundance. To be honest, to be honest this, this was a typical part of a standard Christian greeting in the first century. It's really, it's really nothing special about it. But let me lift this phrase and present it to you in the form of a promise. Grace and peace can be yours in abundance if you obey the gospel. If you would turn from your sins and run to the bloody cross of Christ and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, grace and peace will be yours in abundance. In verses 1 and 2 of this text, Peter shows us the source of our salvation. But then moving into verses 3 through 5, he highlights the guarantee of our salvation. In these three verses, he provides us with the proof permanence, and power of our salvation. The proof of our salvation is found in verse 3. In verse 3, Peter opens this section of the text by praising God the Father. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how he addresses God here. He calls him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This it's highly unusual because in most opening chapters of New Testament epistles, God is typically given the name God or God our Father or God the Father. But here he gives God a different title as he is ascribing praise to his name. He calls him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And addressing God in this way, it's like he is praising that invisible hand that secured our salvation by giving up his only son. He's praising God, and with good reason. He says that God, in his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This clause captures the specific act for which Peter is praising God. 
Peter is praising God because God has caused us to be born again. To be born again speaks of an act of God whereby he imparts new spiritual life to the sinner. This is what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus is confronted by a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night in hopes of having affirmed what he suspects to be the source of Jesus' authority. And then in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in verse 5 of that same chapter, he tells Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, the less what is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So to be born again is to be brought into a new realm of spiritual life. It is to be transferred into a new kingdom. You were once a part of the kingdom of darkness, but now you are a part of the kingdom of light. But the interesting thing about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is that... Peter makes no mention of the kingdom of God. He does not specify God's kingdom as being the object of this new birth. He says that the object of this new birth is hope. In John 3, Jesus says that being born again will allow you to enter into a kingdom. But here, Peter says that being born again will allow you to enter into hope. This hope that he brings to the forefront is not some wishy-washy kind of hope that you have for something that you're not exactly sure that you're actually going to get it. No, this hope that he speaks of, it is a confident expectation for the future. The word that appears here for hope is a word that literally means expectation. There was a lawyer whose car broke down on a Saturday. So he would have to catch the bus to get to work. When he got to the bus stop, he saw that there was an older woman there. So he sat down and he waited for the bus. After waiting for a while, he looked at his watch and then he said to the old lady, I sure hope this bus shows up today. And the old lady replied, oh, it's coming. It's coming. And he said, he said, how are you so sure that it's coming? She said, it says right there on that sign, bus operating hours, Saturday, eight to five. You see, there are some things that we can expect as Christians because we are guaranteed those things in God's word. But what is the basis of this expectancy, this expectancy that Peter speaks of? If you read on, you will see that in a lot of part of this verse, that the basis of this expectation is a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ from the dead secures for his people new spiritual life. This, on top of what was already mentioned, serves as a proof of our salvation. So the guarantee of our salvation is proven in verse 3. The permanence of our salvation is reflected in verse 4. Verse 4, verse four supplies us with the second benefit of our new birth. Verse 3 tells us that we were given a hope through the new birth. Verse 4 shows us that we are given an inheritance through the new birth. An inheritance is something that you receive 
after you die, receive it from God after you die as a result of being a member of God's family. Peter says that you have an inheritance. What kind of inheritance do you have? Good question, I'm glad you asked. There are three verbal adjectives listed in the text that describe the inheritance. It is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. Let me, let me translate that for you. God's got something good stored up for you. And it's death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. It's untainted by earthly elements. So while an earthly inheritance is quickly fading away, your divine inheritance stands firmly fixed. Why is it firmly fixed? I would contend that it's firmly fixed because of its location. According to this text, your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It's, it's carefully guarded in that place that no mortal man can get to. It is secure in that location. Uh, whether you believe it or not, heaven is the best place to store treasure. It's the safest safe. On earth, when you deposit your money in the bank, you always got to worry about it, right? You got to make sure nobody's stealing it. You got to worry about inflation. You got to make sure the market is right. But you don't have to worry about any of those things when it comes to your heavenly treasure. God is guarding it. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. If you value possessions so much to the point where you are unwilling to give them up, then for the sake of your own soul, give them up and store up treasures in heaven that you will never have to give up. In verse 4, the permanence of your salvation is indicated by the permanence of your inheritance that you've received through the new birth. But notice with me the power behind that salvation. The power is revealed in verse 5. Some of you all know some people who started off following Jesus but are no longer walking with him. But yet here you are still following Christ. Why is that? Let me give you a hint. It's not because you've tried harder to keep the faith than they have. And if you think that's the case, then you are sadly mistaken. You are here today still believing only because God's mighty power is assuring that you will safely arrive in heaven. Peter has already declared in the previous verse that God will keep your inheritance, and that's good news. But I've got some even better news. What's that? Verse 5 tells us that God will keep you. If you, if you take a cursory glance at this verse, 
it would be hard to discern that this is actually military terminology that Peter is using. Peter actually used a different word for kept here in verse 5 than he used in verse 4. The NIV translates that word as shielded rather than kept. Kept or protected is what you will find in many other translations of the Bible. Nonetheless, this term actually brings to mind the kind of imagery of the American Red Cross guiding and protecting refugees as they move through hostile territory to get to a more safe and secure location. That's how God will keep you. He will guide and protect you as you navigate your way through life's trials and bring you safely into your eternal home. Jude 24 reads, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You are kept by the power of God. But there's a caveat here. There's a caveat. Only those who trust God will be kept by God's power. Uh, Peter says, through faith, you are shielded by God's power. When you're going through trials, your faith functions as a shield to get you through. The world and Satan can fire at you whatever they want to, but it's not going to have any lasting impact on your spirituality because your faith is going to cover you. Trials may shake you up, but they will never take you down because you are shielded by faith. There is a great divine power behind your perseverance in faith. God is keeping you, but don't miss out on what you are being kept for. The text says that you are being kept for or until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is most likely pointing to the coming of Christ for his church, which I believe could take place at any moment. When Christ returns, an unveiling will occur. Those who have displayed true faith in this present age will be raptured and rewarded with eternal life. While those who have not shown faith will experience tribulation, then eternal punishment. Those who have truly trusted in Christ are sure to persevere and reap a heavenly reward when Christ returns for his church. Their coming salvation is guaranteed. The proof, permanence, and power that points to this guarantee is expressed in verses 3 through 5. Then moving into verses 6 through 9 of this text, we are provided with the final aspect of our salvation, the result. There are three results of our salvation that is highlighted in the text. Unfortunately, I only have time to get into two of those results. <laughs> in verses 6 and 7, Peter tells us that because we are saved, our joy is continuous in trials, and our faith 
is certified in trials. First, he shows us that our joy is continuous in trials. He says that in all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. A great paradox is being pointed out here. Here it is said that these scattered suffering believers is rejoicing in the midst of various trials. This is unheard of. How can joy and trials possibly coexist? The answer is found in the first half of this verse. The first half of this verse tells us that these Christians have something so great that even the worst of trials can't keep them from rejoicing over it. They're able to rejoice in all this. That little phrase, in all this, points to everything that he just discussed in verses 1 through 5. By no merit of their own, they have been chosen, sanctified, sprinkled, given a new birth, and an inheritance in heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Moreover, they are kept by the power of God. Now, when you think about all of that, it becomes impossible not to rejoice in the midst of trials. In a very real sense, a Christian who loses his joy in trials is like a man who puts on a rain jacket but still gets soaked when the rain comes. It just doesn't make sense. All that you've been given in Christ should protect your joy in trials. I think it's true that Christians are to operate like broken thermometers. No matter what environment it's placed in, it's always going to read the same temperature. Because of our salvation, our joy is continuous in trials. But then secondly, because of our salvation, our faith is certified in trials. Verse 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, a greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Write this down, church. Trials are intended to test your faith. This is indicated here and reiterated in chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. If you take a look at chapter 4, verses 12 to 13, you'll see that Peter wrote to these suffering believers. He tells them, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. God, test your faith so that the quality of it can be revealed. True faith is more valuable than gold. According to this text, and because of that, it must be mined so that the beauty of it can be put on display for all to see. So God allows trials so that genuine faith can be put on display. 
But who is it being put on display for? It's for you. God already knows the quality of your faith, but you don't. The fact of the matter is that without trials, you won't know whether or not your faith is gold or fool's gold. God allows trials so that the quality, quality of your faith can be revealed in the present. But there is also coming a day when genuine faith will be rewarded with praise, glory, and honor according to the latter part of this verse. Praise, glory, and honor are things that are typically reserved for God the Father and Christ alone in Scripture. But these things will be shared with you one day. Christ will share it with you because of the quality of your faith. There was a notorious counterfeiter who had just gotten finished with printing off a fresh set of $10 bills. He took them with him to the grocery store to buy some food. When he got to the counter, he handed it to the cashier. The cashier was suspicious about the money, so he took the money, he held it up to the light, and then took a marker and marked the $10 bill with his marker. When he marked it, he saw that a dark mark showed up on the $10 bill. When he saw that, he told the man, I'm sorry, but I can't take your money. It's not real. The man replied, how can you tell me that my money is not real? I know without a shadow of a doubt that it's real. And then the man replied, well, I know without a shadow of a doubt that it's fake. Because you see, when I take this marker and I, and I mark a bill with it, a dark mark means it's fake. But a light mark means it's real. When I marked your bill, the mark showed up dark. So you see, sir, your dollar bill failed the test. My prayer for you today is that when trials come your way in life, that your faith doesn't show up dark, but light. So that when Christ appears, you can receive praise, glory, and honor because of the genuineness of your faith. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for your excellent word. Pray, God, that as we leave this place, that we would apply this word. Make us doers of your word, and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.